0: Oh, man, I can't tell you what an amazing ride it has been so far. I have met so many talented designers and techies out there, either through the show or through speaking or even our Slack community. And I'm, I'm just so grateful and glad to be able to showcase them here so you can learn about them as well. Now, usually right about this time, I do my ad reads and do my patreon update but we'll we'll get to that next week right now i want to read some of your comments uh some of you sent in some really great comments for this 150th episode so i want to go ahead and read those now first one here is from harrison wheeler you might remember harrison from episode 140 that was uh last month he says congrats on 150 revision path has given me a pulse on black designers around the world It's inspiring to meet someone like Maurice, who has created a community that clearly has a need and see it only grow and inspire designers over the years. It has connected me with peers around me and established bonds that will only continue to grow. Cheers to 150 more. Thank you so much, Harrison. Thank you for those kind words. Uh, Jamie Ray wrote in and she says, thank you so much Revision Path for creating a platform for black designers. I listen to a lot of other design podcasts and none of them feature any black designers. Before your show came along, I thought I was the only one. I'm glad to have found the community of designers that look like me. Thank you so much, Jamie. I mean, really, when I started Revision Path, my goal was to have that platform and that showcase for people to see designers that look like them, because, you know, I thought I was maybe the only one. That My friends, we were the only one back when I started the show, and now I know that there's many out there, so I'm just really, really glad for people to find out more about Revision Path. We even have a few responses here from our Slack community. Okay, this one's from Howard Tibbs. He says, I found this chat. Of course, you know, talking about our Slack community. I found this chat from my friend's blog post. Since then, I believe I found the campground for the Black Creative Collective. Keep grinding and keep inspiring. Michael Ellison says that our Slack community is what we need to thrive. And he calls the podcast excellent in its execution. Thank you. Amelie Lamont, who you might remember from a few weeks ago, she calls the Vision Path superb. The audio quality. All of it. Thank you, Howard. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Amelie, for those words. I'm really, really glad for the community that this show has... I don't want to say that it's created, but I think that it's found. I think a lot of people have found Revision Path and found the community here, and I'm just really, really grateful. And, of course, thank you to Harrison and to Jamie as well for sending in those kind words. And there's more. We've got two new iTunes reviews this week. So let's see. The first one here is from Prana Wizard. hope I'm saying that right. It's called Finally Found. A colleague put me on to this, and I'll have to thank him. This podcast definitely gives us something to relate to, and for those of us who are beginning, something to strive towards. I really appreciate this podcast. Thank you so much, Brana. I appreciate that. Next review here is from Bernard Goh. It's titled, The Wait is Over. I have found a voice in which I thought would never reveal its sound. I studied art and graphic design for some time now, and I've never seen any black graphic designers. I'm so glad that you have worked as hard as you have. Hopefully I'll be able to be a sustainer in the future. Mr. Cherry, you're the bomb, the man, the myth, the legend. You sir have documented our lives like no one else. Keep giving me the goods. Thank you so much. Wow. I'm really grateful for those of you that leave those wonderful, effusive reviews on iTunes. It really does mean a lot. If you love the show, I really would like it. If you could leave a rating and review on iTunes yourself, it really helps the vision path get seen by more people. So before we proceed, I want to tell you about two upcoming events. So first, on Tuesday, July 26th at 8.30 p.m. Eastern, AIGA is having their first ever town hall event. It's titled Racial Justice by Design, and there are going to be panels and some Q&A opportunities to ask questions about how designers can get involved with making an impact on today's social issues. It's a free event. You don't have to be an AIGA member to watch or to participate, and you can tune in from anywhere. I'll have a link in the show notes with more information. It'll also have the link to the live stream. Make sure you follow along and lend your voice to this really important conversation by using the hashtag AIGA Together. Again, that's going to take place on Tuesday, July 26th, 8:30 p.m. Eastern. I'll be live tweeting the event as well, so I hope that you can attend. Secondly, on Wednesday, July 27th at 8 p.m. Eastern, we're going to have our July AMA chat in our Slack community. And in celebration, of our 150th episode, the guest of this month is going to be me. <laughs> I'll be answering questions about my career, about Revision Path, how I got this whole thing started and built it to where it is today, and I'll talk about some upcoming changes and developments with Revision Path. You don't want to miss this event. To get your invite, just go to revisionpath.com forward slash slack, or you can check the show notes for the link. All right, now let's get on with this week's interview. I'm talking with Ashley Axios. Ashley is a digital strategist and the former creative director at the White House. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do.
1: Hi, I'm Ashley Axios, and I'm uh, the former White House creative director on a little bit of a hiatus and am an AIGA national board member. So
0: that's a really coveted title, creative director at the White House. Can you talk a little bit about what some of the work is that you've done there?
1: Oh, man. Yeah. So it was really broad. I would say that title probably doesn't even cover half of it since it I worked within the Office of Digital Strategy. But day-to-day was everything from managing the White House brand, making sure that the design work that we were putting out was reflective of the nature of the presidency, the White House as a historical institution, as well as the... Brand of President Barack Obama, the the man who was elected into office, and other parts of the role included really maintaining WhiteHouse.gov. We're charged with the responsive redesign, making sure that all of the White House public facing communications and visuals were clear and effective. And written for a global audience, taking uh, kind of the humans who are going to be interested in learning about what the White House is doing front of mind with the, the content that we put out.
0: So, with all the projects that you worked on, that you just mentioned, which one do you think really challenged you the most?
1: That's a good question. I think one that challenged me the most was actually a bit of a a kind of pet project of mine, and just a few other people, which is the responsive White House redesign. We really had to get buy-in into doing the redesign. So, for those that don't know, the WhiteHouse.gov site is really built in a short period of time, just a few months between the day that the president is elected, you know, that day in November, and then the day that he comes into office and is inaugurated. So this team whips up a site and they try to imagine everything that they think the White House is going to need for this president in the next four to eight years. And as you can imagine, that's not a lot of time <laughs> to, to plan and then put together a website. And folks who have largely never worked within government before, worked for the White House, aren't going to know all the needs of the folks who are actually doing the work within the White House through that long period of time. That and, of course, technology changes, design needs change, social media integration, all of that stuff changes over the course of uh, time, certainly eight years. So that was a challenging project because I had to get out with just a few other people across the White House and really make our case for why we needed to do it in the first place and why what we had, which was really highly praised when it first launched, in January of 2009 was not actually cutting it anymore and was not up to the standards in both a design and technological way for the really broad global audience that it was supposed to be serving.
0: Wow, I didn't even consider that. I mean, that is a short amount of time. That's, geez, that's less than two months. or Well, no, it's a little bit over two months, but it's it's not a lot of time in general just because you've got the holidays in there and everything, and you've got to basically refresh the site New pictures, new copy, new design. Wow, that is a lot.
1: Right. So this team put together the whole initial Obama WhiteHouse.gov in that amount of time. And over the years, you realize, you know, we did a little hot fixes along the way to to create an m.dot site. We put up an Android and iOS mobile app to try to get some of the content on the site kind of more readily in people's hands through their phones in like 2011, I believe that was or early 2012 when that launched. But well, then we reached this point where we realized there are so many people that weren't able to access most of the content of the site because all of those experiences were limiting what they were able to see. So if you went to, you know, whitehouse.gov slash issues our immigration issue landing page on your desktop, you would be able to see a really strong case for why this policy needed to roll out, what the president and administration's perspective is, really answering all your questions and laying out the thought work behind it. And then if you visited in our hotfixes on you know, your phone, you would see a small portion of that information. You might not have any idea that some of the content wasn't Appearing for you because of the way that you're were, you're were trying to access it. So that was a big part of just making the case. And then we had to, you know, then go about all the work once we got people on board in the White House of of doing the work and trying to figure out how we we're going to um, roll it out iteratively while we were doing all of our other projects around the White House.
0: Now you say you worked in the Office of Digital Strategy. Is that? sort of a new office that came up with this administration, or has that been around for a
1: while? Oh, it's absolutely new, and that's a, a great question. So kind of coming out of all of the great things that happened with the 2008 Obama campaign, there was this realization of how important digital strategy, analytics, social media integration, the use of, of Twitter as a platform to engage and communicate with the American public in particular, all of that was kind of understood by uh, President Obama's senior advisor. So when they came in with him into the White House, there was already a very clear case for having a group dedicated to doing digital strategy work. And And still we were kind of under, it took some time within the White House for that to kind of grow into its own office. On day one, it was kind of a subgroup called the New Media Team that existed under the broader communications team. And over time, throughout the course of the administration, it's built up and made the case for just how important it is in this day and age in communicating and kind of bridging the gap between the American people and the executive office of the president that it became its own office and then really rose in ranks to report directly to the chief of staff, just kind of one step out from the president.
0: And so with that office, you actually got to work like in the White House, like in the actual White House.
1: Yeah. So we're on the White House campus, this, you know, beautiful campus maintained by the National Park Service, guarded by Secret Service. So That is quite the experience. Our offices are in the Eisenhower Executive Office Building, which is this mammoth of a building that used to serve as um, the kind of war and and Navy departments when it was originally built, now hosts most of the offices for the Executive Office of the President. And we'd have regular meetings with the senior staff in the West Wing, staff events in you know, what you think of as the formal White House, which is the residence building that has a state floor with all the presidential portraits, a state dining room and the cross hall and great kind of monumental seals that's flanked by the north and the south lawn. And then on the other side of the complex, there are also kind of meetings with the East Wing staff, the First Lady's office, and kind of others that kind of serve in a similar capacity. So the whole complex people don't necessarily realize is kind of buzzing with hundreds of people at any given time.
0: Did you get a chance to, to see or meet with the president while you were there? I would imagine so though, right?
1: Yes. And it's funny how that works out. The first time that I was in the room with the president, I wanted to geek out and, and you know, get all excited like you would if you're, you know, in an event and you're in a crowd. Uh-huh. I'm like, oh wait, I'm staff now. I can't. <laughs> I can't just flip out and get too excited. Right. I have to contain it and hold, hold myself together because we were hosting our office, the office of digital strategy, was hosting this roundtable event with a number of online media outlets, like bloggers and, and smaller media outlets. So there are only like 50 people in the room. The president sits down and talks with them and us for, you know, I think it was over an hour. It was the most interesting experience to, you know, the first time I was in the room with the president to be in this small group discussion while he's answering questions and just being really, really casual. But I learned from that day just how how weird and interesting the job would be because I was like, oh, I wasn't prepared for this when I came into work. So I'm always dressing up now that I work in the White House, but I probably would have worn <laughs> something different. I would have you know, prepped a little different and I uh, had to step up my game because you never know when you work in a place like that just who you're going to find yourself in the room with or yeah. um, what tasks are going to be thrown at you that day. So it's it was a fun job, but I would say probably – it really depended on uh, the period of time, but about every month or or so, I would find myself in that kind of situation.
0: I probably would have still geeked out, just because <laughs> it's like it's the president and you're working in the White House, and I, I probably still would have probably lost it. But no, I, I see what you mean. I mean, there's so many people that I mean, the White House is known as the people's house. So aside from just, I would imagine you know dignitaries and other politicians and senators and congressmen, you have all sorts of guests that are going through the White House as well. So it doesn't sound like there's anything that would resemble a typical day working there.
1: Oh, no, not at all. And, you know, there's so much happening around the building in the complex at any given time. I didn't realize until I worked there that like the Cooper Hewitt Design Awards had a reception yearly in the White House. And, you know, my my first time hearing about it, it was like the day it was happening. I was like, who didn't invite me? I'm a designer in the White House. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, well, I'm going to walk over there and go and say hi to people. But there's so much happening at any given time that it was like, oh, of course, I didn't know that there were hundreds of esteemed designers across industries sitting on the state floor meeting with the first lady and the president right now. Like that, There are just so many things happening. So every once in a while, you get thrown into a fun situation where you get to hang out with Patty LaBelle <laughs> in a small room for a little while, and you're like, "I didn't see my day going this way when I first woke up."
0: Wow, that's amazing! That, that wow. <laughs> so when we look at you know the current administration with President Obama, you know one hallmark that I think anybody can point out, whether you're a fan of the administration or not is how important design and technology are as it kind of relates to communicating information to the public. You mentioned that the Office of Digital Strategy is pretty new with that administration. In 2009, there was the creation of the U.S. National Design Policy Initiative. In 2012, there was the release of the Digital Government Strategy. Um, A few years after that, there's 18F. There's the U.S. Digital Service And, you know, and I don't I don't mean to ask this question to get too political here because, you know, we're still kind of in the middle of of campaigning to see who our next president is going to be. But do you think that this level of innovation with using design and technology is something that the White House is going to continue with whomever will be our next president?
1: I think so. That's really the biggest hope in all of this and the biggest achievement for at least the Office of Digital Strategy is that if we've done our jobs well and and right, it will be embedded into the expectation of the American people and the global public that they will have some of the, the new kind of privileges that have been afforded during the Obama administration, and those will become part of our real civic experience. To give an example of that, We're the first office to really digitize and create an online way to petition the the White House and the executive office and receive a response with the We the People petitions platform. Mm -hmm. That launched in 2011. We just recently redesigned it. And we've put so much time over the course of the administration into making sure that the back end was right and smooth and and technologically sound into making sure that the user experience was seamless into scaling the way that petitions were dealt with and creating a system to receive responses in a quick time to usher those responses within this massive kind of federal infrastructure to make sure that the right people are seeing issues and able to respond to them. At the end of the day... This is something that wasn't created before. It's a First Amendment right of the American people to be able to petition your government and receive a response. But before this digital way had been created, people had to do paper petitions and would drop them off at the White House through some of the other platforms that are out there. You're not guaranteed to get a response from the White House. So this is a really new and interesting way of solving a civic problem and making sure that the public and the administration are communicating. So in that example, if we, we've we done our jobs really well, the next administration, I mean, they're like, oh, well, maybe we'll cut some resources and try to see if we can get a, away from this platform. If they tried to pull something like that, the public would notice, they would get a lot of backlash, and they'd be really held accountable to keeping up the standard that's been developed. So I think across the board, there are so many ways that we're we're trying to push the envelope for transparency, good government, good technology, sound use of design to actually meet civic needs and to, and to kind of engage citizens as real people. There's so many ways that our office has has tried to do that. And I think that it's part of what's enabled, you know, the Presidential Innovation Fellows to be created. 18F, as you've mentioned, U.S. Digital Service, that these things could kind of go on and will continue beyond the Obama administration. And I think you've seen, too, that embedding policy into this, the ways that USDS, the U.S. Digital Service, is funded are all done really strategically to try to separate it from the specifics of this administration, too, to help make it more sustainable in the future, to mm-hmm. ensure that it'll, it will continue beyond our, our short time in office.
0: That's really reassuring to know, because I know that with a lot of the talk that's been going around with the candidates in the current race, I haven't really seen a whole lot of them talking about technology, certainly not about design, but I mean, just technology and how they may or may not use it in their administration. It's been more so on a offensive end in terms of like cybersecurity and stuff, but not so much as what they would kind of do to help facilitate and make things easier for the American public. And I think one good byproduct of the current administration with using design and technology so much is that, like you say, it sort of exposed the American people to what design and tech can sort of do to facilitate how the government serves its people and how the people can interact with the government. You know, It's sort of one of those things where people might say, oh, I'm not a designer, but everyone knows when something has been poorly designed. Yeah, absolutely. And what the government, I feel like, at least with this administration, has started to do is at least correct that in some ways. We're showing that, you know, like you said, with We the People, it's easier to petition with the responsive design of the WhiteHouse.gov site, it's easier for people to access it on mobile devices and things like that. So it's just making it a lot more accessible for more people, I think, is, is a good byproduct of that.
1: And I think it's drawing. We've noticed this too, right, that the good work enables better work down the road, that in doing great work in government and doing it in a high level, both with design and technology, we're starting to see a drive of people from you know, big tech companies and great tech agencies across the U.S. moving into government to see the potentials. Designers from major firms across the country joining U.S. digital service to do either, you know, a nine-month or year-long term serving or or potentially kind of joining in a more permanent position. And that's really exciting too, right? We want this kind of revolving, you know, door of, of knowledge because technology and design, the the standards are changing rapidly we, and we don't want to be stagnant and, um, and kind of sitting in the place that we were just eight years ago. It's important that we have people kind of coming through and sharing what they've learned in the private sector with the public sector.
0: Yeah. When I think about what the white house website looked like just 10 years ago, as compared to now, I mean, one, it's a testament to just how much technology has changed. But, you know, two, it also shows, again, how we're able to use design and tech to make it easier for the American people to know what's going on in the White House. Like, I feel like just knowing about events and things that are going on, it's just become a lot more transparent in that respect.
1: And I think it's it's also, you know, we're talking a lot about the platform as our, our hosted kind of Online destination for all things White House. That is our petition mm-hmm. platform and WhiteHouse.gov. But this goes both ways too, in, in the work that we've done to make information more accessible and to reach people where they are, and that that means embracing new digital channels as they come up and it was quite the, I can't take credit for this one personally, but it was quite the challenge for our office to communicate the need to get onto a platform like Snapchat and even just explain why Snapchat exists in the first place <laughs> to, you know, inside federal government. It's like, wait, you create content, and it disappears automatically. That's like, you know, that's a flag. <laughs> and that's a—that's another like kind of government jargony term that gets thrown around a lot. but. Like That's pretty problematic because everything you do in the White House needs to be saved and archived as presidential record. So how do you take this fleeting content, this content that's meant to be momentary and serve such a short-term kind of communication need and make it lasting and store it and send it off to the archives to be part of the presidential library or future explanations for the work of the administration. And so those challenges hopefully will only continue to happen as new platforms emerge. But I am really proud of the way that our broader team has brought great visual communication into each of the platforms, as well as the fact we've been able to argue our ways into integrating into these various platforms, despite the fact that they have a number of, of challenges and go against a lot of what the federal government has been trained to like deem as acceptable and really even understand.
0: So it sounds like you really kind of have to be up on everything, or at least open to everything to see if it's something that the White House can use. Or or really, it's also about kind of meeting the constituents where they are. I mean, Snapchat is such a huge audience, it kind of would make sense for the White House to maybe explore, well, what Can we talk about in terms of policy initiatives and things like that on this platform that has so many active users, you know?
1: Absolutely. So one big piece is being open, transparent, creating a dialogue and showing what's happening in the White House. And there are times where that means we're not communicating any big policy thing, but we're just showing what the president's doing with his time as a man who is, was elected into office and is accountable to the people who elected him into office. So we all have a right to know if he's spending a whole lot of time in meetings with world leaders, we, we should have the chance to glimpse into that. And so channels like Snapchat, even our YouTube channel where our videographers are able to show snippets of what he's doing are are great in just serving that purpose. But we're also obviously very strategic communicators as well. So knowing who's on what channel and what they're trying to do on each of the channels allows us to be thoughtful about how we want to reach out to people to enroll in health care. And if we're trying to get young adults who have now moved off of their parents' health care plans to know the importance of getting health care coverage and to know when the enrollment periods are open, we want to use the appropriate platforms and not assume that they're all following us on, one, on Twitter, or certainly not that they're all going to whitehouse.gov looking for that information.
0: Right. So you mentioned healthcare. So I kind of have to, I feel like I'm obligated to talk about sort of healthcare design, not healthcare.gov specifically, well, that's, it's, but it's that's, sort not, of,
1: that's not on us. Just, okay.
0: <laughs> but it's it sort of lumped into this because for example, you know, using that as an example, again, that's, not something that you're, you are responsible for, but government design tends to get this very negative reaction from the current design community. I don't know if maybe it is, historically been this way, but certainly I think the current generation of like product designers and stuff, at least from what I've seen, tend to voice some level of disdain for just government's web presences and and things like that. They think it's too boring. It's not sexy. They don't want to work on it. Your work has been a lot about design's ability to kind of create positive social change. And so working for the government means that you're able to influence that change in a really broad way. What do you think we can do to get more designers involved with government design?
1: That's a great question. I think highlighting the work that is successful, that is designed in a human-centered and powerful way, and to sh- to follow through with not just the visuals for that, but articulating the power of that work and the influence that it's had. One great example is, and it's still a work in progress, is Sarah Brooks' work in Veterans Affairs. And Sarah came in, she taught at D schools, worked in San Francisco as a major design uh, influencer in her own right, and joined Veterans Affairs to create lasting work and to open up the user experience office, getting people on the ground to get feedback from veterans and veteran and kind of military families on what's wrong with the VA. What are the real hiccups and processing kind of claims? And all this, yeah, it does like at kind of face value, it sounds like, oh, it gets a little weedsy, a little boring. It's not as, you know, sexy to some designers. But she's gone in and she's already created a new with her team, a new platform, vets.gov, that enables veterans to get the information that they need in a streamlined, simple way. And the impact of that, is just astounding. You have millions of people who have served our country that are now able to access information, get the services that they need quicker because of the work that she's done. It's beautiful, it's effective, and it's helping millions of people. You you can't get much better than that. I don't care how good you feel about your client and how much of a social following they have the impact that you can have working within government is so tremendous it's you know it's like addicting because you can do great beautiful design work just about anywhere being a designer is not the you know hardest work it applies to every area of life and so there are millions of opportunities of where you could put your efforts and where you can focus once you've had a taste for what it's like to really work in government and to apply that knowledge, that strategy into making the lives of people around you better. And you see the results of that work as Sarah and her team have. It's just very hard to go back to, I think, you know, creating a temporary site for a new shoe that's coming out in in a couple of weeks. There's just no real, you know, competing with that. Yeah. But I think there is this, this perception that government design is bad. And I think in part it's because designers are doing bad work for government. And it's this loop where somebody wins a contract and then they go, Oh good. I got that government contract. It's a lot of money. I'm going to kind of just, you know, write this one in. I'll just do it really quickly. The expectations aren't really high. It'll be fine. And then I'll, dedicate all of my time and my resources into this other project. And I think that that's the wrong attitude. And the only people that we're doing a disservice to as designers, when we let ourselves do that type of kind of bad design for this public client is ourselves, because ultimately, we're all paying taxes. (laughs) We're all paying for this work. People are winning really large government contracts and if we're not putting our best effort into it and making it strategic and making it beautiful and effective and putting all of the time that we need to into doing it right, then we're ultimately just handicapping our ourselves and reducing that the bar for the work that should be done in government for those moving forward.
0: So let's kind of switch gears here a little bit. I know we've talked a lot about you know, government design and the work that you've done with the White House. But when did you kind of first get your your personal spark as design? When did you realize that this was something that you wanted to do?
1: I was actually kind of opposed to graphic design at first. I was the artsy kid who was always drawing. And I didn't know that I was doing graphic design. Early on, I'd make business cards for my dad while I waited around his, his office out of post-it notes and i laminate them with scotch tape and I'd, you know, make posters for people in school for their sports games. And everybody's asking me to draw their, their posters. And that's what I was doing. I was the artistic kid and I was drawing and I liked writing out letter forms and making sure the spacing was just right. And I liked integrating text with pictures and, and doing these illustrations, but I didn't know that it was graphic design, for the longest time because I'd also paint and I, I did a lot of creative things. So I was reluctant when people are like, oh, there's this visual communications program at another high school that maybe you should consider joining. I was like, oh man, it's going to be one of those computer ones. And they're going to want me on the computer all the time. So I was actually not terribly drawn to graphic design as a field, but once I got into it, I had a fantastic mentor of a teacher in that program. I did end up going, spending half my day at a visual communications high school, my junior and senior year, um, kind of leaving my, my home high school and going to another. I had, you know, Ms. Sopko as a teacher there, and she was really well trained. And I think she she brought me from the artistic side, the more kind of loose illustration and expressive side of it gently into the strategic side of it and I was able to kind of get a taste for how the computer can aid the work that I was already doing kind of manually and I think the other thing that kind of helped me get into design a little bit was uh, I have ai don't even know exactly what to call them but a family member it's like my mom's second cousin, I think, um, who worked at Uniworld Group, which is an advertising agency um, based out of New York. And they consider themselves a multicultural advertising agency. But like, let's be honest, they're a black advertising firm, (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) really focused on that target. And he allowed me to job shadow with him. And I was able to see how the other side of what I was interested in school, the psychology and and philosophy, articulating and using Aristotle's rules to convince an audience of something, things that we're learning how to do in writing, how that could apply to visual communications and the other things that I was learning along the way through the visual uh, program that I was going to for the other half of my high school program. And so it all started coming together and kind of opened the doors for me to consider graphic design as a field when I went to school. And without, you know, Ms. Sabko as a mentor, I probably wouldn't have even applied to art schools specifically. I don't know what I would have majored in, but she was like, not only should you apply to art schools, actually, you should apply to the top tier schools. And I was like, I don't have any money. <laughs> I can't -hmm. can't afford to go to any of these schools, but she really encouraged me to kind of push myself to just do it. It's expensive to apply, but you'll get that money back. You know, you might not get a scholarship your first year, but I think you'll work hard enough, Ashley, and you will get a scholarship eventually. You just have to kind of push yourself and trust, and I got into RISD. I went. Um, She was right. I didn't get a scholarship my first year, and I worked really hard and was able to kind of get scholarships and focus on graphic design and learn a whole lot more about type and, and spacing and, and all the things that I really would need to, uh, to do to be a graphic designer.
0: Do you feel like that time really kind of prepared you for your career after that? Aside from just, I guess, you know, like the nuts and bolts of design.
1: I think so. I, and in some ways that were embedded into the RISD program and then in many ways, that weren't actually embedded into the RISD program. For example, because finances were were tough for me, I had to work a pretty robust part-time job to kind of supplement, make sure that I had funds for supplies. And so I learned how to really not um, waste any amount of the program that I was in to work really hard on the projects that I was given to put in those full hours, but to still make the money that I needed to make on the side and to work in a separate team being managed at the time it was I was part of the Phonathon team so I learned a whole lot about fundraising and what it's like to be an institution or a nonprofit that needs to rely on donors and information that would you know end up making me a much more effective communicator for the types of clients that I took right outside of school being a designer focused on design for social good, I worked with nonprofits, and the number one thing that they needed us to do is to help them effectively fundraise. And not only had I gone to school for design, but I had just spent three years working in RISD's development office, learning how to fundraise, learning what the heck planned giving meant. And all this made me a lot more empathetic and understanding of my clients when I got out of school and able to help them achieve their end goals of not just communicating about the work that they were doing um, through effective design, but achieve their fundraising goals and these very tangible um, kind of end results as a byproduct of the work that I was able to do for them.
0: And now with the the stint that you've done at the White House, it really feels like you've been able to put a lot of that work into practice on a, on a really grand scale.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think in some ways the white house was such a challenge because I was like, Oh, I'm kind of jealous of the campaigns sometimes because they have one goal, which is to get that person <laughs> elected. I'm like, oh, uh-huh. wouldn't it be nice to have one goal again? <laughs> <laughs> Cause we'd have so many, but it was fun to kind of move in house and work in government and see how, every other office in the White House was like a client to us. And I was able to kind of put that client relationship piece into play and say, oh, I see what you're, what you most need right now is an awareness campaign. And we can help activate a community around the issue that you're identifying or to another office within the White House, what you most need to do is to develop a dialogue and to learn from your audience so that you can develop a program that has them in mind and integrate human centered design practices. So I feel like careers only grow. So the things I learned have only, you know, they've all applied to the next step, but like tenfold and (laughs) in so many different ways that I could have never imagined. It's crazy how that works. Yeah.
0: Well, well, speaking of that next step, I mean, you're, you're an incoming board member for AIGA's board of directors congratulations. Oh, thank you. Have you all kind of started talking about sort of what your plans are going to be for the the current year or for the upcoming year?
1: Yeah, I mean, I can't talk about all of it for that, but there's so many exciting things on the table for AIGA and you know, Rick Graffe, who is the executive director who just left this past January, had done over 20 years of fantastic work for the organization and really built this foundation that everything is is moving upon. But we also have this new executive director who is just highly dynamic and bringing these energy and connections to the organization that we really haven't had for a while. So I think that the next year is going to bring some really exciting partnerships and opportunities. One thing I can talk about is our through the work of a few people on the on the board, as well as the staff in AIGA, they're working on this new ambassadors program that's going to empower more people in the AIGA community to be ambassadors for design and to kind of speak out with their knowledge. And AIGA really wants to be this platform that allows not just highlighting great work and not just advocating for good design practices, globally, but really a network that that highlights the individuals and the resources and is a, a dynamic space for conversation and growth beyond, you know, initial design training that we all have. So it, it sounds really broad, but I'm excited to see the way that more people who've been involved will will kind of become activated and will become, their own kind of advocates for design using AIGA as a platform to kind of speak with their own experiences and, and people who are kind of friends of the organization as well. Everybody's got a place I think to, to get plugged in and to share their knowledge and resources.
0: That's really good to know. I, and uh, you're, you mentioned the new executive director that's uh, Julie Annixter, who's the new executive director for AIGA and yeah, I met, met her at how design Lives. Certainly very dynamic, very upbeat. I'm really excited to see what she'll bring to the table in the coming years for the organization. Uh, one thing I, I know, and this is sort of, I guess, I don't know, I feel like this might be speaking a little bit to what we talked about earlier with with government design, where kind of the current crop of designers may not see AIGA as the type of institution that is relevant anymore, if that makes any sense. And so I think with this kind of new injection with the new board members, and with the new executive director... Maybe that'll help kind of change the tide a little bit and show just how much we can do as designers, how much power we have as designers. One thing that I thought was really good to see was AIGA issuing a letter to the the North Carolina governor mm-hmm. about HB2, which I, that was something that I would never, never have expected to see that from AIGA. So, I mean, just things like that showing how, you know, designers kind of have a place as it relates to civic policy and things like that in the world is is really good
1: absolutely and you know there's this campaign right now too the get out the vote campaign where we're seeing AIGA work to empower designers to help others turn out for their primaries and then and then later for kind of end voting for the presidential election and AIJ has done that for, for a few years now, but I think it's reached this level where we're really seeing not only are designers creating posters, but they're starting these local campaigns. They're partnering with League of Women Voters and their local voting organizations to empower civic action. In North Carolina, designers are creating banners in supportive reform for certain laws to be put in small business windows and are really becoming the public advocates for the issues that they care about. And I think that, you know, AIJ's diversity and inclusion task force and initiative is a great has been a great aid in helping a lot of this happen because if we say that we want an inclusive society that is free of injustices, that embraces equity and equality. Once we make these statements and we make them publicly, it's so much easier to gather around them and to say, you know what, we don't have to worry about being completely bipartisan all the time when something obviously goes against our principles as an organization and things that we have have stated. We then have the The room to kind of speak out against those things and to create room for a dialogue and a conversation that can hopefully create reform.
0: Who are some other designers that you really admire? Like, I know with the work that you've done in the White House, I'm sure you've encountered so many different people. And even with the work that you've done as the the president of, uh, or the former president, I should say, of AIGA's DC chapter, who are some other designers out there whose work that you really admire?
1: So there are so many people that are just doing fantastic work. I think one that may seem kind of obvious that comes to mind is Michael Beirut. So not only is he doing fantastic work that gets people civically involved, he's his thought work and his ability to articulate the reasons for the work and how we should engage in dialogue around great design work and assessing design work. You know, now that we're in an age where everybody wants to Um, give design feedback on Twitter or whatever, has just been outstanding. Um, And he's Mm -hmm. kind of held that design thought leadership role, I think, for a good long while. I mean, there are so many people there's to give one that's a little bit less well known. I admire a kind of colleague, Molly Ruskin, who works out of the US Digital Service. And she helped draft the first version of the US web design standards, which you can imagine, you go to government sites, each one looks a little bit different. It's hard to know what is legit or is not legit sometimes. There's so many different domains and form on one federal government website, forget local government even for a minute, could look entirely different from another one and have completely different experience. Mm-hmm. And she's really helped pare down with that first version what the kind of modular pieces should look like that still allow for customization of colors, but she's simplified so that not all designers working in government have to start from the same place. And now 18F and others have kind of come on board and they're working on the kind of phase two version. And it's still just a recommendation. It's not law or anything for people to use that. But that is, I think, the start of a huge toolkit that hopefully will be adopted across government to create consistency like they have in in UK across the brand. So she's just doing tremendous work and is, you know, one of those unsung heroes, just very humble about the work that she's doing and she only goes to things to talk about the work to help get others' feedback and their involvement. So I just can't say enough about the work that she's done. But there's so many, I mean there's so many people.
0: What are you kind of excited about at the moment right now? I mean, you you're just coming off this very prestigious design gig at the White House. What are you excited about right now?
1: Well, I'm I'm personally excited being outside the White House so that I could participate in this crazy campaign season with a little less need for for kind of self-editing because I think that it's <laughs> <laughs> it is an important time for dialogue and I, I'm seeing the general news media moving away from the issues and talking more about like what candidates may or may not represent in a very abstract way and i think there's actually this opportunity in the next few months to dig in and say you no know, let's get back to the issues that matter to us and like let's start visualizing like what each candidate believes across all the issues that matter to us, and getting people to the place where they can make informed decisions about who they want to see in office based on the ways that they'll affect policy. Because working in the White House isn't just about, believe me, it's not just about like getting the prestigious title. And, you know, once you get elected, your work has just started. (laughs) There's a lot more to it. So I'm excited for that. And I kind of funny like wonky way that I never would have thought I'd be excited for something I'm also I'm excited to see the and this is again just a personal one for me but I'm really excited to collaborate with people over the next few months while I'm exploring future job opportunities and kind of just giving myself some leeway to goof around a bit but I'm working with a good friend on a a children's book and I'm just you know going to have a ton of fun getting into the illustration side and letting my brain relax from the issues um, <laughs> to at least a small degree.
0: Do you feel like you're satisfied creatively?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I think there are these, I'm sure there are a million versions of this like quote somewhere. It's like, if you're bored, then you're boring or whatever. Mm-hmm. There's so much to do. I can't, I'm one of those people that I just find myself creating businesses and creating projects for myself as I tinker and just kind of go through my day it's like oh I can't find a good wallet that I like oh you know what I have some Davy board from when I was doing some book binding and all this other stuff I bet you I can make a wallet that fits my needs and then (laughs) (laughs) and then I've made one and then somebody else wants one and I've made 25 and I just think there's so many different ways that we can apply our creativity, big and small ways, and they're all equally as important, and they kind of spur economic growth as well as keep us, you know, sane and feeling feeling like we have something to kind of contribute and give to the world. So I'm kind of permanently happy as long as I have some supplies and materials and I'm connected to a few other creatives in my network.
0: What kind of advice would you give maybe for for like up and coming designers maybe someone that wants to follow in what you're doing what would you tell them
1: I think that working in doing design for good is is the best direction at the end of our lives we're not going to be looking at kind of each project one off but we'll be looking at really did I do work that helped change the world for the better so I think that it is ultimately this super fulfilling direction to go that is going to be feel good for the long run. It also requires a good amount of grit, determination, and an interest in learning at every step along the way. So I'd say reach out to people, find a mentor as you kind of build up your career, as you start to kind of explore and get a better sense of the the issues or the topics that matter to you and kind of get you feeling excited, excited and fulfilled at the end of the day. Kind of process that information, write down all the things that you've learned and that you've take you've taken away from your experiences and also share those with others and become a a mentor for somebody somebody else. It's just this creative journey and I think I think a lot of us have this feeling of you know, we're in it alone and nobody else has done anything just the way that that we have and so we kind of have to figure it out all on our own, but I've been surprised along the way with the number of people that I've reached out to and said, hey, I just had a question about how you were able to do this or how did you get that connection? How did you get that job? And I'm just surprised by how open people across the gamut are in sharing their resources, their connections, their tips. So I want all of us to kind of be like that uh, so that we have this kind of open source mentality when it comes to our own creative journeys. So I'm happy to kind of I know I'm going to try to write more and do stuff like that so that I don't get bombarded with like direct emails necessarily, but I'm happy to answer questions for, for any individual. And I kind of want to see designers new, fresh out of school, do that for people who are going into school. And I want to see designers who have been at it for a long while really embrace making a, a solid percentage of their time about sharing that uh, regularly with a few connections that they've made and, and mentoring in a formal or informal way.
0: I'm really glad you mentioned that. One thing that I tell people a lot about the folks that I've interviewed on the show, because I usually always ask, like, who have been some people that have been your mentors, who's helped you out? And I'd say maybe about, I don't know, 90% of the people that I've interviewed have said they haven't really had a mentor. They haven't had that sort of guidance or leadership. They sort of just figured it out as they went along. And I think now, because the entry point now for being a designer is, there, it's so much lower than I think it's ever been before. you have so much more access to materials to education, to software, etc that I would like to see kind of the current generation of designers, whether they are self-taught or went through some type of a formal program, kind of give back to that that next generation you know and I'm not saying that it has to be in a well, I see it like like you're saying like in a way that it's that's mentorship where you're really kind of imparting your knowledge about, this is what you should know. These are kind of some pitfalls that you need to be aware of just to kind of make it easier for the next generation and then for generations after that.
1: Yeah, and I think it it can take so many different forms depending on your personality and how much time you have. Like I was saying, I haven't gotten into writing in part because it, the past four years, anything I would want to write and publish publicly would need to go through all this vetting. But then it, it's easy to just have a one-on-one conversation with somebody and you don't have to necessarily call it a mentorship directly. But if somebody reaches out with a question and you say, I will be there to answer future questions, here is my email, like that's kind of what it is. And it doesn't have to be this like a lifelong commitment, which I, might be what people are scared of. But I think most of those people who say they have never had a mentor think are probably thinking of some like very formal program or somebody who they've known for you know years, who has helped them throughout their journey. But I think a mentor can be somebody who you tweet at, who answers a couple of your questions through DM. Like that could be your mentor. maybe it only lasts for a few minutes, but they give you the next step that you need. It could be anything from that to to that lifelong, long-term thing and they're all equally as valuable we just need to kind of keep that information flowing in in both directions who have been
0: some of the people that have really helped you out
1: so definitely my family member who worked at you know World, who i mentioned before my um yeah i don't know i don't know the right term for it but um kind of uncle ben or, or cousin ben and <laughs> and kind of miss Sopko the the teacher that i had who was just so encouraging and really helped me see the the skill that I had and and helped me go for the opportunities without, you know, peddling back. Uh, also when I was in school, I went to our when I was in college rather, I went to the career services office and told them about my interest in doing design for social good. And they connected me with a former alumni who is uh, or an alumni rather, who is doing great work out of New York City. And I reached out to her Sarah Durham of Big Duck, based out of Brooklyn, New York. You know, while I was still in school, and asked a couple questions, and she told me about she, a book she had written. So I read it, the brand raising book, which helped just process how design could work for nonprofits in a um, in just a really thoughtful way that focused on the issues that kind of nonprofits and causes care about most. I read that, and I didn't follow up for years, and and somehow it kind of reversed where she started poking me and saying, how's it going now? <laughs> like, what's going on? Um, and she's just been an incredible resource, helping make connections for me along the way, and always happy to, um, to share ideas and resources. And those are just a few. I think I've had so many. A lot of them are, are from the AIJ network, just being part of the Professional Association for Design and has opened up my network where, you know, I admired the Michael the of the world and Pentagram was like, oh, I'll probably never meet with them or speak with them to get me to the place where I'm having conversations with him via email. And I can reach out if I have a question and say, how did you guys do that thing that you did? Or do you know somebody at such and such place? I'd love to, to talk to them about this project that they just rolled out it's really a great network for getting us kind of connected to one another and um, breaking down some of the barriers that we have
0: where do you see yourself in the next like five years or so
1: oh who knows like i didn't see myself at the white house like that <laughs> that just kind of happened and it was an amazing experience and i'm really thankful for it but who knows that's part of the excitement and the, the great thing about a creative journey is I think we're designers have the potential to do so much to create so much positive social change or to just do work that they feel really good about. And that is whatever your individual ethos is, is fulfilling at the end of the day that I feel like maybe in five years I, maybe I'll be back at the White House for somebody else, or maybe I'll have my own design firm, or maybe I'll be, you know, working on small projects with nonprofits that have me traveling around the globe, or, you know, maybe I'll be teaching full time. It's really hard to know, but I think that's part of the excitement.
0: Well, yeah, I feel like once you've left the White House, you can kind of, you can write your own ticket in a way. So you've got the the world is your oyster, in terms of opportunities. I mean, and I think with the work that you're doing with AIGA and the work that you've done, just, you know, the White House in general, there's a lot of opportunity out there for you to really take what you've learned and, and use it to affect social change.
1: Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. But I do think, you know, if I could get to this point where the world is my oyster and I can do all of these things, and that must be true for for most designers, we just need to get activated into that place and get confident about our work and get comfortable articulating our value as designers and making the case to people outside of our own design field. Because I grew up mostly in New Jersey. My mom was a secretary and is now an EMT. I come from a divorced home and I, you know, wasn't sure I was going to be able to afford going to college and, um, you don't really know where you're going to end up, but I think as a creative person, if you really put the work into it, if you push yourself, if you take risks that get you outside of your comfort zone a little bit, you will see a lot of the rewards. So I think we're all really well positioned to, to do amazing work. And as designers, you know, the, index of our value of the, the value of design within business is, you know, being seen across at least the US economy right now, where we've got um, all of these design led businesses are looking for a principle of design in you know, private industry, and they're looking for designers to come in and consult on Design thinking and what it means for strategy—we could kind of embed ourselves anywhere that we're willing and um, and able to push ourselves into.
0: I like that. I I really do feel that in terms of the work that we do, that we're able to kind of influence a lot of other industries. That's not just about design.
1: Oh, absolutely. You know, you mentioned you mentioned healthcare earlier, and the work that Doug Powell did before joining IBM helping make sure that medicine communicated and that you know diabetes treatment could be safe and sustainable like designers are doing that work that's designers empowering people to be safer and more fit and live longer lives it's just incredible
0: yeah well Ashley just to kind of wrap things up where can our audience find out more about you find out about your work and everything online
1: well, I can find out about me at Ashley Axios on Twitter or on Instagram and AshleyAxios.com to either invite me to speak or to just read more about my my background. It's got all the same type of stuff I have on my my LinkedIn portfolio. And I'm happy to answer questions. If people want to hear more about my journey or are curious how they can get involved in Federal or local government. I'm happy to make connections, and I'm always just um, thrilled to hear of people's interest in serving in that capacity.
0: That sounds good. Well, Ashley Axios, thank you again so much for for coming on the show. I've been such just a fan of your work for a long time, just in terms of the the amount of scale and, and impact that the work that you do has, and and seeing how it's able to affect millions of people. I mean the it it's hard for me to really even articulate and i'm i'm sure you might feel the same way just how much the work that you've done has touched so many people in terms of of education in terms of information things like that so i want to say almost thank you for your service i mean because it sort of feels like that is what you've done you've you've dedicated your your design know-how and service to the country in that way and i'm just really excited to kind of see what your next steps are going to be what the next thing is you're going to do and Certainly look forward to working with you with AIGA. You mentioned the Diversity and Inclusion Task Force. I'm on that task force. So certainly I'm sure that we will cross paths at some point in the future and work together.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate what you're doing with this podcast. And I'm excited to see more Black designers and developers lifted up and kind of amplified so i'll be sharing the heck out of this once it posts and i'll continue sharing some of the other great interviews that you've done and um, i'm really just thankful for the work that you've done as well
0: of love in mind. and that's it for this week Big thanks to Ashley Axios and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Ashley and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Thanks, of course, as always, to our sponsors, Facebook Design, MailChimp, and Hover. Facebook invests in design. They care deeply about how their design team might do their best work, and that manifests itself in a number of different ways, such as building tools like origami, sharing what they've learned on Medium, and by giving back to the design community. Learn more about Facebook design at facebook.com forward slash design. More than 10 million businesses around the world use MailChimp to send email newsletters. Their attitude may be playful, but their business is serious. Sign up for a free account today. MailChimp. Send better email. Hover takes all the hassle and confusion out of buying and managing your domain. Search for a few keywords and Hover will show you the best available options across all the 400-plus domain extensions out there. Ready to get started? Save 10% off your first purchase by using the promo code REVISIONPATH at checkout. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro audio by Yellow Speaker. If you like this episode, please do me a huge favor. Leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. It only takes a minute or two, and it really, really does help the show by bumping us up in those iTunes rankings for design podcasts. I'll even read your review right here on the show, just like I did with the two at the top of the show. Don't forget also about the AIGA Town Hall event that's going to be Tuesday at 8.30 p.m. Eastern and our July AMA chat, which is going to be on Wednesday at 8 p.m. Eastern. Links to both of those will be in the show notes. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. If you like the work we're doing with the podcast and the website, then visit us over at Patreon and become a patron. Just go to patreon.com forward slash revision and pledge your support. Pledge levels start at just $1 per month, and you'll get access to behind-the-scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.